independent voices and civil dialogue across that gaping political divide. This is Ed Fallon. I'm your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, uh, Des Moines, Iowa. You know, if you value what we do, remember we could use your support. You can visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website, or if you run a small business or a nonprofit doing good work in the world, important caveat, you can also consider becoming a sponsor. And uh, speaking to sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Check out Gateway's catering and floral services as well. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Uh, thanks also to Western Optometry, located in Des Moines' East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. All right, later in the program, we're going to be talking about, believe it or not, we're going to be talking about Little League. Uh, Little League parent evictions off the charts here in central Iowa. Why? What's going on? We're going to be talking with Danny Kern, the baseball director at Central Iowa Sports, and talking about how that might be a signal to bigger things happening in our world. And speaking of bigger things happening in our world, we're also going to be talking with Charles Goldman about an article in The Atlantic entitled, Is America Growing Apart? Possibly for Good. But first, it is my uh, pleasure to welcome to the program John Bowermaster. He's an oceans expert, a journalist, an author, a filmmaker, and an adventurer. And we've got that in common. Uh, he's also been the uh, recipient of six grants from the National Geographic Expeditions Council, and his first assignment there was documenting a 3,000-plus-mile crossing of the Antarctic by dog sled. His latest creation is Dear President Biden. I've seen it, and it's well worth watching. John, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks, Ed. Hello. So, Dear President Biden, just going on that topic, or that title, rather, one could think, we don't know what to expect. This is a love letter. This is a challenge. As... As I've seen the uh, film, I know it's about climate and pipelines and oil extraction and natural gas, and it's it's very politely hard-hitting. Well, you know, no one responds well to a, a shark, shark jab in the eye. So uh, with Dear President Biden, the, the subhead to the film is our climate can't wait. Um, you know, this is the fourth in my what I call my Dear series. It started in 2012 with a film we made uh, called Dear Governor Cuomo, which was trying to convince uh, the governor to ban fracking in New York State, which he ultimately did. Then we made in 2015 Dear President Obama, which kind of called into question Obama's all of the above energy policy, which we didn't really agree with. Uh, and 20, same also in 2015, we made a film called Dear Governor Brown, looking at uh, Jerry Brown's governorship of California and how he was running around the world telling nations and and leaders to leave fossil fuels in the ground meanwhile california in california they're drilling 300 new wells a month uh and so we felt inspired to follow that up with dear president biden which is as you suggest had a, a very i think polite ask for the president to live up to his campaign promises in which he said that climate change was an existential threat and that climate change would be a priority in every decision he made um which you know worked for about a week <laughs> and ouch, ever ouch, since ouch. He seems, yeah, ever since he seems to kind of have that's that's slipped through his uh, his thoughts and his fingers a little bit. So the film is is just out. Uh, we premiered it online last week. It, it'll it'll start making its move around the country. Uh, well, now I guess, and uh, and you know we'll make sure that, that the president's uh, at least his press people see the film. Uh, it's 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 only forty minutes long, but it's it's pretty. As you, you you watched it, it's, it's geographically broad. Uh, we filmed yeah. in uh, New Jersey, Philadelphia, Washington D.C., Virginia, Louisiana, Texas, Iowa, California, uh, and it just takes a look at where we are in regard to climate change and and especially fossil fuel use at this moment. So what what happened after week one of the Biden administration? I guess what went right that first week that that uh, stopped happening <laughs> on day eight. Yeah, well, on day one, first day in office, literally signed uh, an executive order shutting down the uh, Keystone XL pipeline, which was good. Uh, and then he rejoined the Paris Agreement, uh, which you know stipulates that every country in the in the in the that, that signed on would set uh, 
benchmarks for where they hoped uh, their carbon emissions would be in, in 2030, 2040, 2050. Uh, Trump had, uh, had abandoned that. Right, of so course. Yep. And uh, then it just kind of trailed off. I mean, there have been some good things. Just a, a week ago or so, he, he, he used this uh, Defense Protection Act to, uh, to allow a bunch of uh, solar panels and, and wind turbines to be built and, and uh, paid for them with government money, which is, which is good. But as we, it was, you know, as we were, were reporting this film and traveling around the country, and when we were in t- Texas, Louisiana, and in Iowa, uh, was when the war in Ukraine started. Right. And rather than, you know, use that, you know, since so much of it is about oil and gas and, and sure. Russia's dependence, dependence uh, Russia's economy dependent upon oil and gas for it, its uh, health, um, it was a perfect time, we thought, when the president could have said, what a great opportunity across Europe where, you know, we'll get rid of oil and gas and we'll, you know, we'll just build a boatload of, uh, of solar panels and right. windmills and, 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 what, and other alternatives. And what do you say? Instead, instead, he rang up his buddies in the fossil fuel industry and said, "Ramp up production. You know, get more oil and gas. Uh, turn that gas into liquid. Send it to, to Europe as fast as you can." Um, you know, it was a the war. Obviously, is an incredibly sad uh, affair. Sure. But I have to have to say that I'll bet there were oil company executives popping champagne corks. Uh, when they heard that. Well, because, you know, the, the, the immediate benefit, if you can call it a benefit, that might accrue to helping to uh, weaken Russia's case in the war in Ukraine, you know, the, the fossil fuel industry is going to benefit tremendously well into the future from the establishment of that infrastructure. And that's, and that, you know, that just makes it increasingly, I would say difficult, but maybe I want to say impossible to get us going in the right direction on emissions before it's too late. Yeah, yeah. The, the the infrastructure that you you talk about is, is going to cost uh, the climate change efforts a generation. You know that it's slowed yeah. it down that much. I mean, yeah. the, the, the shipping oil and gas to Europe sounds maybe like a good thing, but there's no infrastructure to receive it, to ship it, to to store it. All of that would have to be built. Um, so that, yeah. that that's that that slows efforts to now, slow climate and, change by and, a great degree. And speaking of uh, President Biden's promises, I mean, we, uh, he and I go way back. I first met him in 1987. And uh, after I ran for governor in 2006, he and I got together for a game of pool, a beer. We had, we spent an hour together. And uh, I like the guy. <laughs> Likeable. Um, doesn't stop talking. Uh, and, you know, he said to me, he said to me back then, he, he said to us more recently, when I when we were working with Bold Iowa to uh, to you know d- demand firm commitments from candidates on climate, he said, "Take my word as a Biden." He would say that repeatedly. Take my word as a Biden. He made all sorts of other great statements about his commitment to climate. He would remind us that he was the first U.S. senator to take action on climate back in what was it, 1986? And so yeah, he he made it really clear where he stood, and and then he. He's, he's, like you said, he's failed to deliver. So I guess, I mean, do, do, you think, do you think the kind of pressure that's building from the grassroots is going to impact him at all? I mean, we, again, we saw Obama come in with great promises, you know, bringing hope and, and change with him and then failing. And Obama, when Obama went out, of course, he boasted about being the president that made us the biggest oil producer in the world. So, yeah, but Obama was never a green guy to begin with. I mean, I think, to be honest, I think that's the issue is that I don't think we're going to see real action on politically on climate change until there is someone elected who's from a generation in which the issue of climate change has been imbued in them since birth. You know, I think it's really going to take younger people and, you know, change lots of changes in policy who who, who realize that their lives are going to be uh, our being are going to be incredibly impacted by by everything that comes with climate change. And a guy who's 79, 80 years old, who's been funded by the fossil fuel industry all his life, for all of his political life, is not going to make those changes. What about a, what about a, what about a guy who's 79, 80 years old, whose name is Bernie Sanders? Would Sanders have made a difference? Well, he he would certainly. He I don't think he would have let it slip away as a focal point as Biden has. Would Bernie, in this political system, would Bernie have had any more success getting uh, government to 
to pay for it. I, I don't know. I mean, you, you want, as you as you know better than better than anyone. You know, one of your big issues in Iowa is are these pipelines alleged yeah. to carry carbon uh, away from uh, the, the atmosphere and into some underground. You know, cave somewhere, which is just fallacious. Well, yeah, they would t- take them from ethanol plants and pump them underground in North Dakota, near where they needed for enhanced oil extraction, and yeah, underground well, in well, Illinois, and, where and they also use Illinois, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's um, that's uh, I I uh, I know that uh, the Biden administration has been all in favor of this, and they've and they have basically have fed the industry's line, line and lie. That 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 uh, that, uh, that that slip was intentional. Uh, they basically fed that story that this is a solution to the climate crisis. And no matter, you know, the more, the more analysis that comes in, the more clear it becomes that this is not a climate solution at all, but it's just a way, another way for industry to tap into public resources to do something that will allow it to continue to do what it wants to continue to do, and that's to maintain the fossil fuel uh, infrastructure. Yeah, well, in the in the in the movie, the Dear President Biden movie, I, I actually think we set that argument up very well by pitting Sandra Steingraber, who's an incredible scientist and poet laureate and activist, like uh, in a kind of quasi debate with Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm. Yes, I who, saw that. In, who is the biggest cheerleader for for carbon capture in in the country? And we we can't understand because Sandra and I go way back. We she's been in three of my four uh, Dear films. And we were talking kind of after the screening last week. What what is what is what Kool Aid has Granholm drunk that allows her to see the issue so differently? Here's Sandra, who's a, who's a vetted yeah. scientist, going, you know, listening to the promises made by the fossil fuel industry in regard to climate or in regard to carbon capture, and and just saying it's not going to work. It doesn't add up. The accounting's all wrong. Right. And Jennifer Granholm coming back and saying we need more of this. And 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 again, it's a it's a it's a it's an it's a practice created by the oil and gas industry just like fracking so that's a great question why is she what kool-aid has she drunk is the kool-aid that always perhaps has some some mix of uh, fossil fuel campaign donations in it to keep it, people it could it could and she's obviously listening to the fossil fuel industry without, yeah. without question so wait, wait. Um, is, you know is it a quid pro quo i i, I don't know i think it's I, I, but I, I shrug my shoulders. I, I don't know the answer. Why a smart person like that? Mm. It, it seems to be seems to have been so fooled by uh, the gas oil industry. So, John, to what extent would you say the mainstream media is also part of the problem? Um, well, I, you know, I've been writing about environmental issues for forty odd years, whether in print or for films, and I do a weekly radio show, um, and you know. It, what one thing that's changed incredibly is the amount of information that's out there about all these environmental any any environmental issue you want to learn more about you know a few cl- few clicks on the keyboard and you're just inundated with with information that is a, we're, not, we're not we're not suffering because we're lacking information um, I think we're also suffering because there's too much information and people get bogged down mm-hmm. um, you know some of the mainstream media I look at does a really good job you know so I I, okay. I don't I don't think I can branded so much uh you know the media in general t- tends to lose attention lose focus as it races from one issue to the next and the next and it allows these things to uh, to slip away yeah but you know that's why that's why you know we, we made a, a series of films about environmental issues uh, for national geographic those eight eight films and but we use sea kayaks as a way to draw attention to the issues thinking that if somebody's punching through their button they're the remote at night and they see some kayaks in weird places like the Altiplano of South America or some jungle in Gabon, they might stop and look at it and then stick around for the conversation about, hmm. you know, environmental issues in the, in these places, et cetera. I mean, I think I, I teach a class at Bard College here on the Hudson River called um, Multimedia Environmental Storytelling, trying to get students to think about new ways to tell environmental stories. Mm-hmm. Because I think, we, you know, we, I mean, to your point, I guess the one thing that the mainstream media does is it, it kind of grinds us down just, you yeah. know, with, with the stories told in the same way. So well, and, I'm always, you know, the, always the, looking for new ways to tell the same story. And the, the mainstream media has, has shown it can be disciplined and stay on focus, for example, COVID, for example, Ukraine. You know, but when it comes to climate, it seems like, oh, a little bit here, a little bit there, and then they're gone. Yeah. And then people don't get the same, they don't get the same sense of urgency with climate as they do with COVID or Ukraine, right. for example. 
It's it's tricky. I mean, I had a, a guest on my radio show a couple weeks ago who was a clinical psychologist who participated in a, participated in a global survey uh, looking at uh, the, the reactions of 16 to 25-year-olds around the world in regard to climate change. Mm. And in the United States, the percentage was pretty small, relatively, of, of persons who were of young people who were concerned. Uh, it was pretty small, like 50, 60 percent. But in the rest of the world, it was like 85, 90 yeah. percent who thought, you know, the end is, is nigh. Yeah. Uh, and in part, I think that's because a lot of the rest of the world is is, is suffering firsthand, maybe more than... Well, than, I mean, we are too. Gosh, fire, fires, floods, uh, two derangements yeah, yeah. here in Iowa. I, I mean, yeah, the suffering is going to get worse, but it seems like we've already had enough to give us a wake-up call. But, um, yeah, anyway, I, you know, again, I... I think uh, I commend you on your continued perseverance on on writing these letters, these films. Uh, and I think uh, if people want to watch this film, again called yep. Dear President Biden, how do they do that, John? Uh, you go to the, the People versus Fossil Fuels website, or just search the People versus Fossil Fuels uh, YouTube, and it's there. Okay, great, folks. We have been ch- talking with uh, John Bowermaster. He's a filmmaker, and his most recent accomplishment is Dear President Biden, a hard look at the administration's minimal accomplishments, shall we say, in the realm of the addressing the climate crisis. Uh, and John, Ed, Ed, importantly, you forgot that I'm a, a long, long-time uh, resident of Iowa. I, thir- thir- 12, 13 years, I think. Yeah, sorry. Well, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yes, good to yeah. know. Good to be reminded. Yeah. All right, folks, so when we come back, uh, we're going to be talking with Danny Kern. He's the baseball director at the Central Iowa at Central Iowa Sports. And you may say, what the heck's that about? It's about parent evictions at Little League games. And we're going to tie that in with some bigger concerns. Uh, back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. You know, at a time when big corporations control most of our media, you know, the niche that we provide is more important than ever. So please support what we do. Go to the Fallon Forum website, uh, sign up for our weekly messages, donate if you can, become a monthly sponsor. And, you know, speaking of sponsors, uh, thanks to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. Wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact David Drake, FamilyPsychiatry.com. All right, welcome back to the program again. Um, later in the program, we'll be uh, talking with Charles Goldman about a column, an article, I guess, in The Atlantic called Is America Growing Apart? Possibly for Good. We'll also be talking with Kathy Burns for our farm and food segment about Hawaiian food hubs that are kind of upsetting the apple cart when it comes to conventional agricultural practices there and elsewhere. Uh, it is my uh, delight at this time to welcome to the program Danny Kern. He's the baseball director at Central Iowa Sports. And, yeah, you know, you don't normally hear me having a sports segment on this program. Once in a while, for example, when Tom Brady does something amazing. But, uh, you know, this, was, this really caught my attention. Uh, evictions of parents and coaches at Central Iowa ball games recently just went off the charts. Um, and this is... Um, this is uh, startling to me. 
especially in a state that, you know, we like to call ourselves Iowa nice. Uh, Danny, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So Iowa nice. Um, <laughs> you, you see this news and you wonder, well, what's so nice about us uh, when we can't restrain ourselves and behave with respect and dignity at a kid's ball game? I mean, what's going on here? Well, what we're dealing with is, is, a, is a national issue. We have a national shortage of umpires. And what happens is when we're trying to train new young umpires that are in the 15 to the 18 age group, the tolerance level for adults when they're watching their kids play and travel baseball and other sports around the country, they, they allow their emotions to get you know, out of control. Um, the problem is not only do they get out of control, but they want to verbally abuse you know, some of them, you know, follow the umpire to the car. Some people will uh, just make a scene. And, and if they get ejected, then, of course, they want to go out in a blaze of glory by dropping a bunch of F-bombs and all that sort of stuff during, we're talking from anywhere from a 7U to a 14U baseball game, which um, is, it's really a, it's become a, you know, just a dramatic, uh, you know, thing here in, in the United States, but here in Des Moines. We had... Um, Two weeks ago, we had probably approximately 17 ejections in one day. In one so day, one day. We, wow. In one day, yeah. And it was it was extreme where, you know, these adults, you know, let's let's just say 35 to 45 year olds, um, want to abuse and yell and scream at at a 15 year old kid who's out there just trying to learn, you know, the game of baseball by umpiring. For an occupation with the world that we have right now where people a lot of people don't want to work they're trying to work trying to learn the job and they, they just cannot get the opportunity to do it because the adults want to take the fun away from the game because they think that every pitch and every at bat is a life and death you know situation and it's just it's just out of control so what we did was we had a conversation about it and we instituted now um, more stringent rules that if you get ejected you're missing that game. You're missing the next game for sure. And if you, you know, if you go out unlike a, a gentleman or a you know lady or gentleman, then we're gonna get rid of you for the whole weekend. If uh, if you it's at the end of the tournament, then it will go to the next tournament. You know, because we have all the tournament directors in the state of Iowa that I will contact them and we'll force them to set out that game. Um, we're trying not to get more extreme than that at the moment here because we want to get control of it. Um, the last two weekends, we've had probably six total ejections in the, in the two weeks, so it's gotten better. But at yeah. the same time, you know, it's it's just now getting hot outside where people, you know, kind of, sure. you know, they go out there in the heat and they say no, you know, with COVID issues, different things going on in the world, price, you know, gas prices, everybody's kind of just, you know, on edge and, you know, they're supposed to come out to a baseball game and just relax and cheer on their kid and they, they just seem to... Yeah lose the concept of what this is all about well, you, and that's you, to get the kids ready for high school baseball and you, hopefully college and maybe in the, in the major leagues. You no, know, you hate to think of six evict, evictions as an improvement, <laughs> but I mean, that's what we're talking about. Correct. Yeah, correct. When you're, when you're dealing with 17 on one day and you go down to two one week and four next week, that is an improvement. It's not, it's nowhere near yeah. where we need to be at. We need to so, be with zero. What, what's what's it? I mean, I, I'm trying to wrap my mind around what would inspire a parent to go out and drop a string of f bombs at a 15 year old kid refereeing a. I mean, you say you said you're talking about, but we're talking about seven and eight and nine, ten year old kids, right? That, that that's the players. Correct. Yeah, the players, right? We're talking about. I mean, kids right. who ideally don't even hear these words, <laughs> and suddenly you've got right. a parent yelling them at the umpire. You know. I mean, what, what, I'm just trying to wrap my mind around what, what motivates a parent to do that? You know, I'm a parent myself. Of course, my daughter is 30. I've been officiating um, high school football, baseball, and basketball for over 30 years after I got the Marine Corps. I, uh, I've done college level. I've done, I've done everything. And I usually don't come across this type of issues when I'm officiating. I like to think that I'm a very well-respected official, but... You know, I do do games that people don't know who I am, but I still don't have that issue. The problem is that these I, – I don't know why people are like a ticking time bomb to explode 
because of balls and strikes in a baseball game. I just don't get it. Yeah. Um, I understand if an umpire is out there and they call a high strike one inning and they don't do it the next inning. I, I get it. I don't know if it's because they watch NBA games and major league games and they see, you know, the umpires and the players and everybody get yelled at and stuff by the players. I don't know if that's the problem. You know, the world we live in now where, you know, I mean, heck, you watch the uh, NBA championship game or the NBA final uh, finals this, this year. I mean, the, the players argue about every call. Yeah. And, you know, so I don't know if they see that and they think that that's just, you know, the world we live in, we should be able to do it too. But the problem is, you know, I mean, they, they people pay a lot of money for travel baseball yeah. and, you know, they want to play, they spend money on hotel rooms and gas money and all that stuff. They come out here, but it gives absolutely nobody's any right at all. Right, and it doesn't right. really matter if it's a young kid umpiring or, a veteran like myself, all it takes is for you to come out and call a timeout sure. and come talk to the guy and just say what you th- you know what you think and what you what you saw. Well, and it can be worked out. Well, and the, and, and the, these guys just re- with well, and the fact that there were more more uh, that there were less technical fouls in the NBA Finals than there were uh, uh, you know evictions <laughs> in the in, in yes. Central Iowa on one day. I mean that's just. Again, it just it just blows me away. But it sounds like you guys are doing the right thing by laying down a stricter law. Uh, of course, I, I don't know. You know, you could still not stop a you know a, a really angry parent from showing up anyhow, despite being prevented. Despite you know being prevented from doing so, I guess in that case you gotta you gotta call the cops or something, eh? Yeah, I mean that's the. I mean that'd be the outcome if we tell somebody to leave and they don't leave. Um, I mean, we haven't ran across that issue, yeah. um, at least now. We've, we've teetered with the fact of how do you punish teams even more, and, and um, we've teetered with the thing where you get ejected as a fan or a coach. Not only do you have to go, but now you have to take your kid. So that hurts the team. Oh, wow. You yeah. know, um, yeah. You know. so that, I mean, we're, we're teetering with that. That will be the next step we take. We don't want to mm. do that because yeah. it's all about the kids. But sure. The kids are embarrassed by their parents' act, you know, actions. All yeah, I, I would I mean, guess. I would guess the kids would usually be embarrassed by the kind of parental activity. Yeah, we yeah. did a lot. I mean, you you see the kids out there, and you see the the parent going off, and the kid is just standing there, and just they're embarrassed. They're shaking yeah. their head. They, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I can't tell you what's in their mind because I'm not a mind reader, but I can tell you that if it was me, I'd be embarrassed by the actions also, and and that's and that's where we've come from or come to, I should say. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that we don't have to go to the you leave your kid leaves because you know, but I think that might be the next step just to you know because then the teams will have to forfeit their games and it's all because you know the you know they'll they'll get rid of that parent from coming to their games yeah. themselves and that will clear it up also because when you ask a coach that whether they're getting paid or volunteer coach for these teams. you go up to them and you say it and they go well I can't handle the fans I'm, I'm worried about coaching well you you are you know but also. You know, if you took on this responsibility, you're also taking on the responsibility of right. outside the fence also. Because bottom line is, everything in this world is leaning towards we have to look for the safety of our, our children and, and, you know, our umpires and everybody else. And because you, you, you just don't know what could happen next. Yeah. And it's like, how do we get control of this? And, and at least we are trying. Because um, here's, here's the deal. This is the honest thing here. College level high school level in Iowa, they can't find umpires. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're trying to build umpires here so that way if they get better, get stronger, then they, want, they might want to move up to that high school level. So we're, we're the feeding line for, for all the steps mm-hmm. up. And we're the only one that I know of that is trying to recruit umpires, these young guys, these 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds, when they're not playing high school games during the week, they're playing during the week, they're umpiring yeah. on the weekend. Now, Danny, uh, you know, we're trying to get them. Yeah, you know, I, I, I can think of one game where fan outrage might have been appropriate in an umpire, and that's the game that I refereed, that I umpired at age sixteen uh, for three dollars. Um, I did a right. horrible job. I was just, I, it was not something I was cut out to do. Um, I, I was, it was too much pressure. I was calling, I mean, balls that were strikes and strikes that were twice as tall as the batter. I was like out of control. Uh, I just wasn't doing a good job, and fans, I had fans of both teams upset at me. <laughs> right. But um, what you guys do, you, you don't send a guy out there, you don't send a kid out there cold. I mean, they just sent me out there cold. Here's three bucks, go ref that little game. Ouch. You don't do that. You prep them with uh, some training, some background. 
we, we try to give them as much training as we possibly can. Um, the problem is when, like, when we start the season, we have a, an umpire that does our scheduling, and we also have another umpire that is involved in training to get the, the young kids to come out to the fields. Now, granted, if they can't make that training, you know, with the shortage of umpires, we do have to use some guys, right. but we try to put them with a veteran to also protect them. Um, and that's – we have things in place here to – give them the opportunity to to um to grow as, a, as an official now it's a great summer job it's a great future if that's if they can st- you know stay strong in there but we figure if we get let's say i'll just throw a number out there let's say we get 80 new umpires a year if we can just keep 20 of them yeah it's a win, well, it's I, a win. I, I would not have you been one, i would not have been one of them danny you know I, i'm having a hard time understanding why anybody would ever want to behave this way uh, you know, when I was first a candidate for the state, I was back in 1992, I knocked on a lot of doors. And one of the main reasons that people said they would support me over my candidate, over my opponent, was because he was a horrible Little League parent. <laughs> he was, he was right. known at games for being obnoxious. And yeah. so I, I guess I'm having a hard time understanding why anybody would ever want to behave that way. It almost seems like it's, they're out of control, that they don't have any control out of it over themselves and it's just they're, they're lost in it maybe it's this uh, this intent to see themselves as living vicariously through their offspring I, I i don't know what it is but it's it's not good for anybody it's not good for the kid the umpire the team the angry parent themselves it's good for no one yeah i i think that um sometimes when i have my conversation with my other officials we talk about it and we come to i don't know if it's a in, in a joking way or whatever how we come to this conclusion but it seems like that somebody has been. It's like you you go you go out and you you're not a, a popular person maybe or whatever. And then you know in school and then maybe you've been bullied or whatever. And all of a sudden you get in like a position of power. And then it's all of a sudden it's like now it's like you just want you just explode and trying to be a you know just a a rear end. And I just don't get it. Um, my mom would have whooped the, the heck out of me if, if I would act that way, even <laughs> even to this day. Right. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's the reason why. Mm. You know, you can't spank your kid. I, I don't know what the I don't know what the answer is. I don't know well, why. Let me, let me, when I when I go ahead. I was going to say, you know, the, with with the increasing um, tensions in our world. I mean, I mean, and and with more and more people resorting to guns as a solution to being upset. Is there is there any concern among is there any conversation among among your group about how to respond if a parent goes that far? I, I tell you, it's a it's one of them things where you talk about it. I don't know what we would do, how we would handle the situation. Um, we haven't got to the we haven't got to the point where everybody needs to have a security guard on hand kind of thing. Um, I, I don't know what the answer would be if that situation would ever happen. Hmm. Uh, I mean, but you you do you do see it every day um, on the news anymore with the schools and um, people just walk in the bar. I mean, just almost every night now you have a mm-hmm. you know unfortunately a, a at least a shooting or a, a whole bunch of people getting shot. Mm-hmm. And I would I would hope and pray that that would never ever happen at a sporting event for youth minors. But I mean, if it could happen at a middle school i mean i'm, I'm so it could happen anywhere i would think yeah. you know because it doesn't even have to be somebody that's a parent it could be somebody just walking around you know the park one day having a bad mood i mean they could do anything they want you know yeah. anything could happen it's just, it's just like i don't know what the answer to that would mm-hmm. be either to pre- prevent that from happening either um i well, just know that we want the kids to come out and play baseball yeah, we want them to have fun yeah. we want them to be kids we want yeah. them to learn the game of baseball and become better, you know, citizens by, you know, if yeah. we can help with that and granted we make money by running tournaments, yeah. but at the same time, it's all about the kids yep. and for them to have fun is what we, our bottom line is for, you know, for what we do. On a light note, as we uh, got to run to a break here, Danny, on a light note, world series predictions, long ways away. Yeah. But who do you see making it to the final round in the major league? Well, I'm a Braves fan, so I got lucky last year to, to win the world, to, to be a champion for last year, as far as my team is concerned. This year, I, I, I'd say I think it would be hard to beat the Dodgers. I think I'll, I'll take the Dodgers versus. I'll go on the limb and say Dodgers versus Toronto Blue Jays. Really? That's just my opinion. I'm, yeah, I'm going with Red Sox. Just, just 
Just because I'm a Yankee hater. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, we have that in common. I'm a Red Sox fan. <laughs> yeah, I think Red Sox just need a little bit more pitching. Well, they're, know, they're so. sure doing good right now. We'll see how that goes. But, um, you know, yeah. baseball is a great game. It's a game that kind of embodies civility at its finest, although we see, you know, we see deterioration not just at the Little League level, but sometimes at the Major League level. Um, but, you know, it, it has the capacity to bring out the best in us, and I think that's a tradition that we want to uphold in advance. So, anyway, Danny, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, th- thank you for giving me the opportunity. I, sure. I appreciate it. And um, just if I could say one more thing, fans, just let the kids play baseball. Yeah. That's all you got to do. Yep. Just, just be quiet and just watch the game and enjoy it. Yes. You know? I mean, because life could be a lot more worse than yeah. just watching a game of baseball. I know. Danny, thanks so much for joining us. We've been talking with Danny Kern. He's the baseball director at Central Iowa Sports. When we come back from a break, we're going to look at an article in The Atlantic called Is America Growing Apart? Possibly for Good. Charles Goldman is going to join us back in a moment on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Remember, you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business or nonprofit sponsor. Check out the Fallon Forum website for details. And uh, speaking of sponsors, thanks to Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Owner Mark Clipsham knows we have to build better health for people and the planet, and the services he provides are committed to that goal. That's Architecture by Synthesis. All right, with me now on the phone, Dr. Charles Goldman. Charles, welcome to the program. How's it doing, Ed? I, I heard you're, you're sick there. No, I had COVID, but, you know, it went, went pretty quick. You know, just uh, 36 hours of, uh, of lying in bed and thinking, oh, I'd like to die right now. And then, you know, boom, back at it. Yeah. I, don't, that's, I well, know that's not everybody's COVID experience, but uh, it wasn't that big a deal for me. Well, that's good for you. Yeah, good for me, right. I am drinking like a fish, though. I tell you, I, I, I cannot stop chugging water. So anyway, um, but yeah, uh, you know, you, uh, you and I have both um, read this article by, uh, in, in the Atlantic um, featuring Michael, uh, well, referencing significantly Michael uh, uh, Potthorzer. And he's a, yeah. he's a longtime political strategist for labor unions. And also um, chair of the Analyst Institute. I'm really not familiar with that. But he writes in this article, quote, In truth, we have never been one nation. We are more like a federated republic of two nations, blue nation and red nation. This is not a metaphor. It is a geographic and historical reality. Okay, I, I would agree with the federated republic part. But when you start defining it as blue and red... I, I, you know, that kind of, I, I kind of get lost there. I, I don't, where do you, where do you, how far do you go in drawing the line of where's the blue, where's blue America? Where's red America? I mean, the guy down the road is a huge Trump supporter. Does that mean my neighborhood is part red, part blue? I, I don't, where do you draw the line? Well, no, I mean, I, I, I think at this point, his, his, his main point is that structurally this country is set up along lines that have really not varied from the very beginning of the 
federation of colonies into states, which is that the, the, the states that we identify as red are, for the most part, similar to those that we would have identified as Confederate. You know, now obviously not all these states were around during the Civil War. Yeah. But I mean, you, have, you have a fairly similar geographic distribution and a fairly similar um, level of uh, social issues, uh, educational attainment issues, uh, economic activity, population density, that has not changed all that much. Well, I mean, go, go back to the original 13 colonies. I mean, does, does that analysis hold water when you're looking at, you know, 13 states huddled along the eastern eastern seaboard? Well, no, of course, that's what I'm saying. I mean, you know, obviously, uh, although I'm not sure every person in the United States, you know, knows that there's 50 states, but... Um... <laughs> wait, there, wait, 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 there's 50 states? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm not saying that, and nor is he saying that. But but what was the defining issue around the way this country was set up? It was set up around an issue of slavery and the concern, and at that time, the overrepresentation of the slave states versus the non-slave states. And the Constitution set up the system which gives excess power to rural states and less densely populated states at that um, to protect slavery. Okay. The and Second sl- Amendment and slavery was there to protect slavery. And slavery it wasn't there to give people the right to bear arms. Okay, slavery is so, long, long gone. So how, how is that relevant to today's situation? Because Well, okay, now that's a good point. But it is a tyranny of the minority. Slavery, how did slavery, what, what led to the Civil War? The Civil War, I mean, from at least from the northern point of view, obviously from the south, it was that they were defending states' rights, but was the action of, at that time, what was also a minority within the north, right? Abolitionists were not the majority in the north, right? but they were very savvy, very vocal, and they now they eventually mobilized the majority in the north, and in states that really, as distant as Iowa, didn't have much of a stake in this to, you know, to involve themselves on the side of the North in the Civil War. But if you look at what the troops of the Civil War believed, they came to believe slavery was the issue. But they actually believed that continuing the Federation, continuing the nation, was their, was their priority. So right. I, I, think, it, I think the question here is... You have to see that there are two. There is two. There are. Okay. There is a true red state and blue state America. But isn't it's not just a matter of how they vote for Trump? Okay. It's also a matter of the laws. Okay. Yeah. Take an example. Stand your ground laws. Are there any stand your ground laws in blue states? The answer to that is no. Yeah. But but again, okay. okay but how how does this how does this play out? Okay. I mean. Again, I, I, I'm, I'm going to operate from the assumption, uh, I assume you would agree, that maintaining the U.S. as a cohesive country is a good thing. If, um, if, if okay, no, that's, I would say yes, most people okay. would believe that. I mean, everyone yaks about secession, but for the most part, people would believe that. Right, but, you, but we have this, I mean, the article refers to it as the MAGA movement. Some call it Trumpism, but they refer to it as a MAGA movement, Make America Great Again. Uh, and they, the article compares that to uh, authorita- authoritarian movements in Hungary, Venezuela, elsewhere. And it's, uh, you know, it, it is emphatically anti-democratic. <laughs> it's really ba- built on this, this notion of a, uh, of, a, of a minority being able to control stuff. And they've done a heck of a job. They've done a fantastic job at being able to do that through... Various election laws. Uh, I mean, through gerrymandering more than anything. So yeah, I mean, we're well on our way to uh, having a minority control what goes on in the U.S. And again, it's not just current practices, but the filibuster, um, the, uh, the the whole uh, the electoral college. All these things have set us up for a small minority to control what happens. But I mean, is it really in the but best? That's happened before. That's correct, and that's right. why the real question here is. 
it's one thing to ban abortion in the sympathetic states. It's another thing to start to try to use the mechanism of the federal government to impinge upon the freedom of other states that are saying, we're not going to do that. And if there's an attempt, if the Republicans run the table and end up with the presidency and both you know, uh, yeah. houses of Congress, sure. and we, we know that, of course, no matter what he says, Mitch McConnell will trash the filibuster if necessary to get this through. Of course he will. They will push forward with a, ban, a federal ban on abortion. Right. Now, the question is, is that slavery, you know, 2.0, in terms of what happens to this country, or is it prohibition? Because prohibition was another example of a tyranny of minority right. in which rural states, for the most part, in reaction to, among other things, the political power of the Democrats – in the more you know the more well populated urban areas of the 1920s America, pushed through an amazingly unpopular. Remember, they amended yeah. the Constitution. And it, it didn't last long. It did not last long. Correct, and it right. didn't last long because what happened was well, people like to drink. To people who weren't as avid, but nevertheless supported anti anti democratic party policies suddenly found that it impinged on them in a way that they were very uncomfortable with. So and I, I have so, thought, I've thought that the abortion uh, issue is going to go the same way, because most Americans do not support ending the right to, to choose an abortion. No, that's not why. They, it's not. It's they, if, if they cared enough about that, they would not allow the election of Trump. No. Well, the apathy is the norm for the American voter. No. What, what we'll finally get to, this is the question. What we'll finally get to people is when they're busy surveying who's having their menstrual period and whose miscarriage was self-induced as opposed to natural, they're going to get caught up in it too. And then all of a sudden, see, because the next move is, is not just banning abortion. The next move would be the affirmation in places, maybe even in the United States in general, of a fetal personhood. And and the, the consequence of fetal personhood will suddenly be, wow, what do we do about IVF? What do we do about women who have miscarriages? Which, by the way, is almost as many as, uh, as the number of actual you know, abortions in the United States. Um, so that's the big question. You know, everyone's gone for the Civil War route, which is eventually, you know, the, the blue states may say, you want this? Come and force it. Just as pretty much what the red states were saying to the federal government, yeah. right? Or well, what, 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 it what's... becomes prohibition, and in some ways this had to happen because so, only when it goes this this to this extremity are people going to understand what they voted for. So, do you think we're getting to that point where people will understand that? And if we do, not yet. Okay, so not but yet. but if we do, I mean, you said not yet. So eventually we will. And it, it will it, will that point be reached at a, in a way that will avert the the you know destruction of uh, of the United States, or do you see? And again, I wasn't clear from. I think the article kind of left it open to the to the you, you know your your best guess as as to whether or not uh, this division in America means eventually you know separate countries. Uh, it, 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 di it did say it doesn't see it coming to civil war, and I agree with that. I don't know how a civil war would work in the U.S. today. You, know, you don't have a clear-cut line separating the North from the South, you know? Correct. And again? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think it's more likely that it's going to get a lot worse because it's going to start to spill over into a generalized invasion into privacy. And, you know, I think you have to understand how we got here, you know, the Republicans manipulated this issue in hopes they would never come to resolution, only to, to you know, gin up a base that they could rely on. And now the base has basically taken over the Republican Party, and no matter how far-fetched and ridiculous – I mean, today, you know, one of the right-to-life clearinghouses was, was sort of proffering a bill that would, that would, you know, make it a crime on the Internet – to make statements that would, uh, you know, uh, be stimulating people to engage in an illegal act, right? So essentially talking about the availability of abortion services in another state where it's legal 
under this law would become illegal. Okay, this is the crazy that we're getting to. And the next crazy is going to be probably one of the craziest states like Oklahoma, Missouri, that, that, you know, those are probably the number one, number two. Well, and and there's going to be more and more states added to that list, including including possibly Iowa. Yeah, and, you know, and then you've got these vigilante laws going where the the whole issue of assistance, being coming a crime, and and you know that's what they're trying to do is keep the state out of the enforcement entirely. Uh, you know these things are going to get worse. And okay, so you know, so again, again, unrealistic. Again, take, I mean, I, 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 you I, know, I, don't talk to me about a federal law that's going to ensconce Roe v. Wade as the law. It's never going to happen. It's much more likely we'll end up with a ban on abortion than we're going to have Roe v. Wade as ensconce yeah. as the law because there's no way to do it. I don't know why people think the Democrats have control. Yeah, but it's yeah, and it, we're almost out of time, Charles. Here about it, but you know, to me, at some point, you know, there you go far enough with this draconian approach to managing individual rights and personal liberties, and there will, at some point, be enough pushback from the majority, a big enough majority, that it stops, and you start reverting. Right, you'll drive, you'll drive the people who are just kind of riding along on the wave to finally say, enough's enough. You know, I mean, we thought that anything Trump did would enough would be enough, but it's not enough. But now this ultimately, I think, will end up in a place. That's yeah. why I would agree that the prohibition model is probably more valid right. than the Civil War model. Well, it's always good that we agree, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, folks, I got to run to a break here. Uh, uh, Dr. Charles Goldman. I always like to add the word doctor there just so people do know that your medical opinions here uh, are of, uh, of, of, of something that is, they're well-researched and part right. of your daily experience. But not to confuse you with the other Dr. Goldman. Not the other Dr. Goldman, that's uh, correct. Hey, uh, again, thanks for joining us, Charles. And when we come back from a short break, Kathy Burns, we're going to talk about Hawaiian food hubs and how those have upset the GMO apple cart, perhaps. Back in a minute. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of Architecture by Synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures, great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Remember, you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor, or if you own a small business or run a nonprofit, you can become a sponsor of this program. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has cared for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, again, welcome back to the program. With me now, Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm. You know, we, we try to look at what's going on all over the country, but I don't think we've had a program conversation on Hawaii yet. But here we are talking about Hawaii's mm-hmm. food hubs. And I, when I, I had to scratch my head a bit and think, what is a food hub? Uh, it's not, it's not, not, not your corner grocery store. Well, a hub can be any, you know, space that's used for a particular purpose. Um, the food hubs we're describing in, in uh, Hawaii, specifically the island of Maui, it, uh, it's about food forests, really. Okay. And there was an article in The Guardian about indigenous farmers in Maui. They've been really bucking the trend of genetically modified crops um, in favor of bringing back food forests from ancient times. Okay. That's a big buck. 
<laughs> that <laughs> is a big a buck. Lot because, of power there. And we'll talk more about it later, but it seems that Monsanto has been a really bad player in the area. Oh, surprise, surprise. Yeah. But uh, I mean, first of all, just I, I've not been to Hawaii. It sounds beautiful, but um, just, just thinking about the island systems, Ma- Maui's the island just northwest of the big island of Hawaii. Um, a just little description of it I saw was low-key Hawaiian island with forest reserves, volcanic peaks, sandy beaches, and hiking trails. And now that I've read this article, I will add lots of severely damaged uh, land and monocropping and GMOs all over the place. And that's because of the introduction of of large-scale style industrial agriculture, I suppose. Yes, right. because traditionally forests in the past have provided all the food for the people of the island in addition to medicines, and those got pushed out when basically uh, people came in and pushed out the indigenous people and planted all kinds of uh, uh, you know, monocrops. So, so right so, now it's just it's just uh, kind of wasting away in a lot of places. So so what, um, I mean, in Iowa, like 80 to 85% of the food we eat in the, quote, breadbasket of the U.S., 80 to 85% of our food comes from somewhere else. Because, again, most of what we grow here is feed for cattle and hogs or feed for our cars, ethanol. But what, what about Hawaii? Again, tropical environment, you might think there'd be a higher percentage of you know, local food produced on the island. What's it look like there? Well, that's what the indigenous farmers are trying to get back to. But right now, between 85 and 90 percent of the food eaten in Maui is from imports. And, of course, at the same time, diet-related diseases uh, are skyrocketing. And um, the, the state is allocating less than 1 percent of its budget to agriculture. So some people are trying to change that. You know, like we're seeing in a lot of places, people are pushing back and they're starting to engage in, you know, re-engage in local production for local markets. Is that happening in Hawaii as well? Well, yeah. The the Guardian story was about a particular couple and their representative of numerous individuals and couples and groups of people uh, in Maui and uh, across the other islands. And they're trying to transform some of the land that's been depleted. Um, this particular couple is working on a mountain ridge, and they follow the Hawaiian saying, "Land is chief, and people its servants." Ah, so, as opposed to "land is cheap," which uh, <laughs> unfortunately is what the the motto is in, in much of the country. Right, and yeah. and they're you know they're trying to recreate systems that had made it a lush and. Um, because you, know, you know what, when I think of Hawaii, I think of export crops like like sugar, pineapples, and whatnot. But I imagine that the native population subsisted on much more than pineapples and sugarcane. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they the, these folks aren't really trying to get back every type of crop from the past. Some are not able to to come back. But what they're doing is providing the forest system that has the canopy under which mm. the, the, the other crops grow. So the canopy is uh, right now consisting of papaya, coconut, mango, coffee, candlenut, also known, candlenut. As, known as the East Indian walnut, and sugarcane, huh. and uh, not in the same abundance that it was but, grown in, in, in that devastated balance. farmland. Right. And then ground crops, there's one called kalo. It's a tr- traditional Hawaiian root vegetable, sweet potatoes, breadfruit, that's in the same family as jackfruit, turmeric, and peppers and uh, some other plants used for mulching yeah, now this, and fertilizing. Uh, I, I'm reading a book by Hannah Lewis called uh, Mini Forest Revolution. And this reminds me of that because the, 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 the plan is to create a full-grown, you know, canopied forest in small spaces, but to do it quickly. And I'll, I'll, I'll have to get Hannah on this program to talk more about that. But, mm-hmm. but this is encouraging. It seems mm-hmm. like the exact right kind of thing to be doing. Yeah, is it, are they able to to engage this type of farming on a, a big enough area to make a difference? Enough individuals are trying to move that forward, and they're again they're trying to work against a lot of the devastation caused by uh, settlers coming in and pushing indigenous people aside, and then the the big ag companies coming in. For instance, Monsanto, um, according to an article in the Honolulu Civil Beat. Seed companies, including Monsanto, have decades-long history of performing agricultural research throughout Hawaii, but since the early 2000s, there's been a substantial pushback from communities over pesticide usage on genetically modified 
organisms, predominantly corn. So there is in corn too. Yeah, uh, yeah. and <laughs> right. Monsanto yeah. Uh, is is a huge company. It has been employing about six hundred people in Hawaii. Well, but it's, bear now, of course, bear. You yeah, that's. But people are seeing now that that's the the jobs that Monsanto is mm, providing right, right. are not more important than the overall health of the people in the agricultural systems. Yeah. Now, this is cool, and, and I know this is not. Again, I know Hannah Lewis is uh, talking about places all over the world that are creating, you know, edible forests, and not just edible forests, but 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 forests that provide other benefits as mm-hmm. well. But we had a, a gal on the program here. Oh, a couple of years ago, Carol Laresh from uh, Sheridan, Wyoming, mm-hmm. doing a bang-up job at a forest there. There so. are lots of examples and very interesting stuff. Yeah, so very good. Well, um, good to know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> hey, Kathy, thanks so much for joining us. You're so welcome. And thanks to our other guests today, John Bowermaster, Danny Kern, and Charles Goldman. Also to our production team of Sherry Hardina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. And thanks to our local small business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Westrom Optometry, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. And thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Remember, folks, your support for this program matters a lot. So go to the Fallon Forum website to learn more about how you can make a difference. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week with another hour of cutting-edge talk radio.